Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Masters Edition of the Four Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and this week, my very special guest is Peter Costas. Peter, as you well know, for years and years, more years than he cares to remember, uh, was in the tower at the Masters for CBS Sports. He has also been a coach for Paul Casey for a number of years as well. And Peter and I go deep into what this win by Hideki Matsuyama on Sunday evening means, not only for Hideki Matsuyama, but for all of Japan, for Asian golf. We go a long way into the rabbit hole, talking about his swing changes, how Hideki Matsuyama was able to find a way to putt, to become a better putter. He used to stink at putting. My gosh, he was awful. Um, we break down all of the fireworks that happened on the back nine Sunday at Augusta National, as well as go into some really interesting, what I think, conversations about Will Zalatoris and his future. Xander Shoffley's yet again, another near miss at a major championship for Xander Shoffley. This guy is just not going to be a happy camper here for the next few weeks. We talk about uh, Jordan Spieth. We get into it about Bryson DeChambeau, Rory McIlroy. Peter, as always, is fantastic. So hopefully you enjoy it half as much as I did uh, just chatting with my buddy Pete. So be sure to sit back and enjoy. So now making his triumphant return to the Four Press Podcast, I'd like to welcome my buddy Peter Costas, who... Unfortunately for me, because I like hearing your voice up above 13, that to me was one of the rights of spring, Pete, was not at Augusta. You were home. Are you in Phoenix? Or where are you? I'm in Scottsdale right now, yes. Yeah. Yep. So it's, you know, the, the Masters, the Azaleas are back. It's not November. It was the golf course that we all anticipated. It's the golf course that we love. Obviously, we've come to love this place over the years. And we get Hideki Matsuyama as the winner of the 2021 Masters. So congratulations to Hideki. I will start this podcast with a confession. I never thought Hideki Matsuyama was going to win the Masters. Not because he isn't a great golfer. I think he's a he's a wonderful player. And, I, and I've spoken with him a few times through his translator. A very, very nice guy. He can't putt. You know, and I guess what is... I'm sort of putting that out as my confession. Congrats to him, because obviously this week he did. How surprised are you that for a first major championship, Hideki Matsuyama wins the Masters? Well... Okay, first of all, you're, you're right. The putter was the club that was holding him back uh, all the time. But he's put in some good work lately. And he's been doing some good, solid, uh, fundamental drills, not messing around with uh, all kinds of weird stuff and whatever. And I think that he's learned how to uh, he's learned how to solve the club correctly. He had it with the toe up in the air, causing him to pull. And then he would block at the next one. And so he was very inconsistent. But he's got his fundamentals organized now. And I think he proved if you can putt like that on those greens for four days, um, your putting has definitely improved. Which to me is sort of a long-handed, very teacher-like answer to you weren't convinced maybe beforehand. I mean, obviously he's worked at this, but you and I have seen him on practice greens for not quite a decade, but a long time now. And he grinds over putts and to me always look really mechanical. He looked like he was very methodical about that. And that can be a great way to practice. I mean, to practice with a purpose, I get it. 
his his putting stroke never seemed to flow even with the hitch at the top his full swing is gorgeous i mean the rhythm that he has all that stuff he never had that with the putter bow before did he well okay so he's changed his rhythm of his full swing as well mm-hmm. and I, i've followed him since he was 19 and we first saw him at the masters uh, after winning the asia pacific amateur uh tournament so he had a, he had a he he wound up like a Japanese baseball pitcher, and they had that little pause at the top of their backswing before they unloaded and and throw the throw the pitch toward home plate. And and he wound up like that. He kind of paused at the top, and then he would explode from the from the ground up. And that pause in his full swing, which can get you kind of jerky in transition if you're not spot on, is exactly what was wrong with his putting. He took it back too mechanically, stopped. And, and then he would explode sometimes uh, with the putter. And again, with the putter not sold properly, uh, it was difficult for him to control speed and direction. Other than that, his putting was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Other than that, how did you like to play, Mrs. Lincoln? Um, so he goes off in the last group uh, with Sandra Shoffley and promptly hits one. I couldn't tell whether uh, the ball just didn't turn, whether he blocked it. He goes way right into the trees and actually makes a pretty impressive bogey out of that 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 could have been very bad but in the blink of an eye a four shot lead goes down to two shots when you sort of see that happening and right away you know the lead that you had slept on overnight is halved you haven't even hit you know the the second hole or the second tee box yet what's going through your mind as a viewer at this point you've seen enough of this stuff one one hole bang that that leaves in half well, I'll fill you in with a story with my wife. She came in, um, in into, the, into the room where I was watching the tournament, and, and she and she goes, "Well, it's over." And this was like <laughs> this was like on the eleventh hole. It's over. It's done. He's going to win. And I go, I, "I don't think so." You know, just, just wait. This is the Masters. This is the back nine, and and you never know what's going to happen. And then, of course, you know, he made some birdies and and in bogey twelve, birdie thirteen, and then she comes back in. She goes, uh, "It's over now." I go, no, just hang on, honey. It's just let's just wait a little bit. And then he pull hooked his four iron. Oh. Um a la Seve back in eighty-six, except Seve pulled hooked it in the front pond and and uh, Matsuyama pull hooked it in the back pond. So that was game over, and it was a two-shot swing, and the rest is history. He had a battle of life. Yeah, so so I'm watching this on and and he's teeing off on fifteen. He's at thirteen under par wonderful score a score that will win many masters he's got a four shot lead um he hits a drive that that looks to be in really good position there's a tree for people i've been fortunate enough to have played the course you've been there a gazillion times there are a couple of trees that sort of jut out into the middle of the fairway from the left hand side which basically just create this overhang which you can be in the fairway and when the pin is over on the left or in the center left it creates this awkward position where guys have to hit a draw or hook something in from left to right around that tree and onto the green. And I'm thinking to myself, with four-shot lead, why is he not laying up? If 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 he's got these strokes, why not take bogey out of play? Par is his friend. He can just run out the clock. What did you think of the decision, given the circumstances, to go for the green and two there and, and just even bring any of that into play? That was the decision that I first felt comfortable that he had the mental stamina to win. If he'd have played away from... Uh, going for the green and two and laid up to a whatever yardage, then I would have thought that he was starting to question his abilities, question his mental discipline, and and then there might be some interesting 
uh, stuff happening through the rest of the, the back nine. But that decision told me, just like Phil, when Phil went forward on 13, from up in the pine straw, um, you, you never know how things are going to turn out in the end, but you get an insight into the mentality of the player. He had enough confidence in his golf swing, he could put it on the green somewhere. It, uh, it to me, when I was out there, how much, well, let me ask you this. So how much of that, if he, do you think is his decision? How much does he go back and forth with his caddy? Because at some points, I mean, we always refer back, or I at least mentally refer back to 2006 at Wingfoot. Phil Mickelson is famously on the tee, last hole, makes par there, and he finally wins the U.S. Open. A lot of people are like, Bones has got to jump on the bag and not let him pull out driver. Hit anything else. Just find the fairway. At what point does a caddy sort of get involved with that sort of decision and say, hey, look, boss, four shots. You're instinctively reaching for four iron. Okay, on Thursday and Friday, I love that. Today with four shots, you know what? I'm loving hitting like an eight iron and then flipping a wedge in and walking over to 16, knowing that we only really probably need four or five halfway decent shots, and we're slipping into a green jacket. Well, I, I think this call was completely 100% Hideki's. And, uh, you know, I've been to Japan, whew, I think I first went there in the late 70s to teach some, and, and uh, the culture over there is completely different than the culture here. Japanese culture, the, the respect that the caddy has for the player, um, the, the caddy's not going to really, you know, grab the, the six iron and break it over his knee and say, no, I'm walking away. Here's your wedge. That just doesn't happen. So that was 100% Hideki's call, in my opinion, and and uh, I think the correct one. Gotcha. So in that situation, then, he is behind the green. You're Xander Shoffley. You dump it in the bunker there. He obviously hits a great shot. How do you, if you're Shoffley then, all of a sudden, like, you've got this great swing. Matsuyama has given you a gift. He makes bogey. Um, he hits a wonderful bunker shot tight you've had some opportunities some things have not gone your way he's surging there he walks then on to 16 is that a measure of like do you think he was playing and we don't know this obviously we're recording this podcast you know within an hour of the final putt dropping at augusta national do you suspect that he was almost playing that he was going to have a little bit more adrenaline flowing through that things were coursing through because that shot in the air never looked like it had much of a chance it hits under the bank short when we all know the play, it's Sunday at the Masters. Even I know these whole locations and how you do it. You throw it up on the bank and you let gravity be your friend. You can't come up short there. Well, according to his interview answer to Amanda Balionis at the end of the telecast, um, they misjudged the wind. They thought it was a little bit down off the left. And he, he said he hit a perfect eight iron. He, he was happy with the way he hit it. But then they felt the wind coming back into him from the right. And, and so they misjudged the wind. And then when he went to the drop zone, he had a little chip nine iron. And he said, I hit it. And almost as soon as I hit it, the wind switched back downwind again, which is what I thought was originally happening on the tee. So I've always said this somewhere during the week of Augusta National. Um, you you got to pick a, a shot. You got to pick a club and you got to pick a time. And you better get all three of them right through Amen Corner and, and the back nine. Or, or you're going to pay a price. And so I, I think he made good swings. I think he made uh, the right club selections. He just picked the wrong time. Or if you want to say he made the wrong decision on what the wind was doing, um, you know, that's that. That's what led to the triple bogey six. Yeah, it was, it was heartbreak city, obviously, from there. Tell me, Peter, how much more does the wind affect Augusta National 
than the wind that you typically would get at other PGA Tour events. Pick whatever venue you want. Because obviously, it seems like everybody becomes a meteorologist when we get into this tournament. The wind direction, the severity. We know that it's it's swirling around through Amen Corner, which is the lowest point in the golf course. And because the pine trees are above everybody, but there are chutes and alleyways, it seems, through the fairways and other places. I, I always sort of wonder how much more they have to be attuned to the wind at Augusta than they do at other places. Well, the problem with the wind at Augusta is, um, let's take 12 for an example. Everybody knows that hole. And they look at the flag on 11 to see what the wind's doing there. And it's generally the opposite. And, but when the wind is coming into you from Augusta Country Club over those big trees, and it almost hits a downflow once it goes over the trees. And so you can be feeling that, that it's into the wind, I'm downwind, I'm sorry, on the tee because it's swirled over the top of the trees, but it's really into the wind when you get up by the green. So um, you have to get experience there in the sense that if you put the ball above the tree line, probably one thing's going to happen. If you keep it below the tree line, another thing's going to happen. Um, and, you, and you have to give it your best guess, actually, when, when all is said and done. And that's why everybody talks about experience being so important at Augusta. So – in the in the span of thirty minutes, uh, when Shoffley and um, Hideki Matsuyama are playing fifteen and sixteen, we get Hideki goes wet long, Xander plays a great shot, puts some pressure on, then he rinses, makes triple. Can you remember a major championship where coming down the stretch you had such sudden and abrupt momentum shifts like that? I know that it happens, but it felt like literally within. 20 minutes the tournament could have been lost by matsuyama the tournament could have been, been potentially won i mean if shoffley stuffed something in there close coming off of a bogey at 15 matsuyama's got to be feeling it and he knows what to do and and such like that he was dry on the shot that he was but i think the fact that xander rinsed on his approach shot all of a sudden they said on the broadcast he had been hitting eight iron into that green he goes to seven and Anything that's dry is looking really good to Hideki at this point. I can't remember a tournament that had that much from two different players that fast. Well, let's let's not. I mean, I've seen it quite a bit there. Actually, we saw it. We saw it yesterday. In in literally in about a, a five minute stretch, Hideki opened up a four shot lead. But let's go back to Tiger in 2019. You know, they're, they're coming up to the 12th hole. Four guys out of five. Tiger's the only one. It puts it on the 12th green. Four guys out of five put it in the creek. I mean, that's unbelievable. And then you come around to 15 where I was, and Molinari hits a really poor layup into the into the left rough, and the ball squirts up the club face, takes off too high, hits a pine cone, and falls down in the water. And so all this stuff is going on. And even when Tiger played up 18, people don't realize this. If they go back and watch the, the tape, his second shot on 18, the reason it came up short, it hit a pine cone. And it knocked it down, but it knocked it down in a perfect place. Could have hit the pine cone and gone – the ball could have gone in the 10th fairway someplace or, or wherever. So those things tend to happen around the back nine at Augusta. So I've never been to Japan. It is way up on my list of places that I want to visit. You, it said, have, have been there a bunch <laughs> of times. During the broadcast, a lot was being made. Um, Nick Faldo went into quite a bit of depth on it, and obviously Jim Nance was helping him out on it, about how much this win is going to mean in Japan and for Asian golfers. Can you give me a little bit of perspective about 
what what you think Matsuyama's win is going to mean. Obviously, for him, it's going to be big. But but for golf in general in Asia and for golf in Japan, which is a really mature market, what does this mean? I'm going to give you a little bit longer answer than you want, but I think it's an important answer. Um, in 1957, the Canada Cup was played in Japan at the same golf course, by the way, where they're going to play the Olympics this year. Two guys, Pete Nakamura, who I had the good fortune to meet years ago in, in Japan, and uh, Koichi Ono, they're playing for Japan in 1957. They win. Uh, Nakamura won the individual. They won the team. It was Japan's first international athletic win post-World War II. And that's when the country of Japan fell in love with golf. It was kind of the resurrection, the rising sun, if you will, of Japanese sport internationally after the war. And golf became um, incredibly important to the Japanese people. And in fact, those two players, Nakamura and Ono, were invited to play in the 1958 Masters because of the Canada Cup win, which we now know is called the World Cup, right? It's so that was the birth of golf in 1957, popularity-wise, in Japan. I think the same thing's going to happen again now with this victory by Hideki. I think, I think the, the Japanese pride, which has always been there, it's, it's, it's the number two uh, uh, country in the world for golf. America's number one. Japanese market's number two. Um, and it's not that big of a country. So I think you're going to see a huge boom in the popularity of the game of golf in Japan after this victory by Hideki. I can only imagine, and I think you can appreciate this, that um, a lot of people don't see when the PGA Tour is, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, making players available. They're trying to get their practice stuff done. They're on the range. They're doing some corporate stuff or, or whatever they need to do. And, and I vividly remember when Royal Ishikawa came to the United States and started playing full-time on tour. That There was, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds. 20, 20 to 25 photographers on every shot on a Tuesday practice round. Mm -hmm. There was a media scrum that was held where we were, I really remember, we were at, um, we were in Monrata, Arizona, and at the old um, match play, when it was set up there at Dove Mountain, they brought out a white folding lawn chair, put it down right behind the practice tee, and he sat down. Pete, they were 10 people deep in a 360-degree circle around him. The kid hadn't won anything, you know? And I'm sitting here thinking, like, how much pressure is going to be on this guy to not just play well, but to play well pretty soon? Because he is going to have such an intense focus, an intense glare on him. Um, Matsuyama's had that also. I, a couple of years later, I had a chance to interview him for the first time. I was at uh, TPC Summerlin in Las Vegas. And, and this is a pretty quiet event. I mean, you know, it's Vegas Strip and all that kind of stuff. But it's a fall series event, so it's not got huge high-profile stuff. There was still tons of Japanese media there. I was the only one who asked him for an interview in English. And he goes and he has an interpreter who we saw coming up. I, I forget the gentleman's name. He's got sort of whitish hair. He's done the stuff at the Masters doing the things behind there. Um, he was very nice. It was, was great had lots of stuff, and actually thanked me afterwards for requesting an interview because it got him out of having to talk to Japanese media that day. We spent about 20 minutes chatting, and then he said, that fulfills what I need to 
to do for the day for media. Thank you very much. And then discreetly left out of a side door. How much more pressure do you think he's going to have on him? How much more intense can the media glare get when J Japanese players have already had that? Now he's going to have the green jacket. It's it's somehow I think it's going to go up. And how? Well, no, I don't think it is. I think I think this may set him free. I think, um, and I'm going to go back uh, to it. I'm going to name drop here. I apologize, but the the the, the, the godfather to my two boys is an Austrian downhill skier named Franz Klammer. Hmm. And Franz and I uh, spent many a night with some schnapps and beers and wine and reliving his, some of his World Cup victories. And the, the Olympic downhill in Innsbruck, Austria, that Franz ended up winning, the, the weight of the country was on him. And, and he, he paused the button as we're watching the rewind of the, of the beginning of the downhill race. He goes, there, right there. That's when I decided I wasn't going to ski for Austria. I wasn't going to ski for the Austrian team. I was going to ski for myself. If I crashed, I crashed on my own. If I win, I win. On my, but I, I, I had to get rid of all that pressure. And I think that that's in some manner or form what Hideki did today. He's been under that kind of scrutiny for his virtually his entire uh, professional life for sure. And I think at some point he had to say, you know what? I have to control what I can control, which is – one shot at a time, all the cliches, and just go do my best, and wherever it ends up, it ends up. But you can't you – know, the great players get to deflect the pressure of the moment to the future or the past. The, the not-so-great players keep more pressure on themselves in the present, and that's exactly the wrong thing to do. So, mm -hmm. however, Hideki deflected the pressure of the country on his shoulders, uh, he needs to keep doing it because, obviously, it was successful today. So what do you expect from him uh, as we go through 2021? Obviously, being the Masters champion, there's going to be lots more that's going to be asked of him by the U.S. markets. And all of a sudden, you know, magazine covers, everyone's going to want interviews. For Hideki Matsuyama, though, the golfer, the player, is this the confidence boost he needs to potentially have strong seasons? We saw him a couple of years ago rattle off, what, four or five wins in a row. He won Tiger's event. He won some events in Asia. He got all the way up to number two in the world, if I'm not mistaken. He's He's been really high up. Where, where do you think he goes from here? Or do you think that there will probably be a little bit of a dip and and sort of a, a, a he's going to need to take a breather after this? Well, I think this victory frees him up mentally, you know, to a certain extent. Uh, but when I look back at some other major championship winners who've won their first major, um, they, they didn't – they got all kinds of offers coming in commercially and a lot of them wanted to capitalize uh they did not set aside time to keep the quality of their golf game uh where it was when they won the major they, they got consumed by chasing the dollar um and hideki is going to have i mean they were saying it today that this might be a billion dollar opportunity for him and that's all well and good but he has to always remember what brought that billion dollar opportunity to him which was his craft his skills his work ethic and if he maintains the time that he needs to work on his craft play his games play his tournaments then i think he's going to do just fine and will probably be a, a multiple tournament winner this year but if he so gets consumed and sucked along by that vortex that we know happens to players after they win their first major then it could be a a dark time for him so let's take a look and talk about some of the other players that were a big part of this tournament. Will Zalatoris almost stole the show. 
I mean, that that kid was sensational. It was obviously his first Masters. I was asked when I did some media stuff, you know, give us a name. They always want, give us a name that we haven't heard of that you think can do well. Well, typically there's a reason why like those players, we don't talk about them because it's very difficult, especially for your first one or two times at Augusta National to, to come out on top or be a real genuine threat to win. And I mentioned Will because I love the way he hits the ball. Uh, I love his attitude. And I think that we saw a lot of that. If you were Will Zalatoris' instructor tonight, what are you telling him? And I'm asking you that because everyone's going to tell him he's the next coming of Jordan Spieth. And everything is great. Um, but at the same time, that's one week in one tournament, and it's now in the books. How? What, what are your thoughts about his game and what you saw? And what would you think should be the plan for him for the rest of this year? Well, first of all, I don't think he was given enough credit for the quality of player that he was coming into this. Let's remember, he was on the Walker Cup team mm -hmm. years back. So he wasn't exactly chopped liver as an amateur, right? Um, he qualifies for the U.S. Open, finishes sixth. That was erroneously reported that that's what got him into the Masters, but it wasn't what got him into the Masters. He worked his way up through sponsors' invites, playing well to, to number 50, top 50 in the, in the world ranking by the deadline. That's what got him in the Masters. Now, with this second-place finish, I think he's going to move inside the top 30. I don't know, 26, 27. So, again, he's wanted this his entire life. If I'm his instructor, I'd say, you know what? You've made a couple huge, giant strides toward what you've wanted for your entire life, but you're not even there yet. You're not even close to being there yet. We don't change what we're doing. It's been successful. We keep practicing the same way. We keep working on the same stuff, and we keep the same attitude that we had that got us here to get us where we're going to go. But so you, don't, you don't buy into the hype. That's the one thing you don't do. How much do you think going forward? I mean, a lot was made on the broadcast, that especially early on when I was watching about like, okay, he's playing great. He came into this event playing really good golf, but Will Zalatoris being a master's rookie doesn't have any of this mental or emotional scar tissue related to this tournament. They kept bringing that up again and again. And, and I was thinking to myself, Pete, that yeah, that's all well and good, but I don't know that I buy into the fact that it's better to be playing well and have a great attitude but zero experience at this golf course. Because as we've already talked about, there are so many nuances and subtleties to this place that just need to be experienced and learned. And playing three or four practice rounds under whatever conditions you happen to get probably isn't going to be enough, especially when you factor in pressure and emotional strain that you're going to go through as you stick around. Now you've made the cut. Congratulations. Now you're in one of the last groups on the weekend. It's Everything gets keeps ratcheting up. How much do you buy into the fact that the no scar tissue, the no bad experiences was a positive for Will Zalatoris? You know, I suppose a little bit. You know, it's – it's. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why Fuzzy is the only real first-time rookie. I mean, Horton Smith won the first event, but somebody had to win the first one. Right. Uh, so Fuzzy Seller is the only one to, to, to win as a rookie. And, and he had a very, very experienced – uh, Augusta National caddy on his bag that week who basically said, here, take this and hit it there. Oh, here, aim the putt there and hit it this hard. And so Fuzzy just followed directions, right? Um, the rookies are coming into this now with a lot more knowledge. Uh, they're, they're playing Billy Beanball. They're, they're, they're all statisticians. They're all using strokes gained and, and you know, whether to hit – tee shots with the driver or lay back and all this stuff. 
So they're coming in with a positive game plan. Problem with that is that'll get you so far. But like today, in my opinion, he hit driver on three because stats show that the closer you can get to the green, the better off you are. Except if you haven't ever played that left front pin placement on number three. Impossible. Because trying to hit a, a 30-yard pitch from 15 feet below the green to that pin, it's, it, it's like that old down east main joke when the guy stops – there's a guy walking on the side of the street. He stops his car. He says, excuse me, do you know how I can get to Sanford? And the guy goes, yeah, can't get there from here. Exactly. And, and so you, you put yourself in positions if you follow stats compulsively, sometimes where you can't get there from here. And, and that's what experience at Augusta is. And you're better off taking the 40-footer from below the hole than having the 8-footer from above the hole. Stats tell you that's not true. But stats generally aren't the specific situation that you're facing at that moment at Augusta National. And, and that's one of the things that I wish there have been so many really cool advancements that the Augusta National Golf Club has done. Their, their app to follow the tournament is first in class. I mean, it's fantastic. If you are not able to get in front of a television, but you have Wi-Fi and you've got a, a tablet or a, or a mobile phone, you can have a great experience doing lots of different things. Um, they have made things for media that is on site. I would have been there had it not been for COVID. It's it's the it's best in class. Everything is great. They, the players rave about how how well they're treated. The practice facilities are wonderful. The statistics that the Augusta National puts out were old when Bobby Jones was playing golf. I mean, it is as rudimentary stuff as we get. And I I'm mentioning this because a lot of the stat and golf wonks who really sort of get into the analytics as I sort of dabble in from time to time. I wonder if, as you alluded to with strokes gained putting, for example, those metrics are a lot of times are based on distance, which over the course of a season sort of tends to work itself out. 10 foot putt downhill, 10 foot putt uphill. You're going to have about the same number, give or take, and these things work themselves out. As you mentioned, though, when you are coming onto greens in different situations where, okay, I'm on three. It's a 350-yard on the card, um, par four. There's a couple different ways to play this. Most players we saw were hitting driver low into sort of a little valley region that left a short pitch shot, certainly a partial wedge shot for the vast majority of them. And when you've got a pin location set on the far left, you've got about the size of the hood of a Buick to land that ball on. You can't hit it in such a way to generate enough spin to stop it. It's hard to get the trajectory to stop it. So even though the stats in those cases, Pete, as you're alluding to, say you want to hit it as far and get as close to the hole as you can, which makes sense. Um, I, I think this is one of those courses where the stats can sort of backfire on you as you're, as you're talking about, because I certainly would much rather have a 90 or 100-yard full wedge shot that I can control with some spin onto that location rather than these little partial shots that everybody hit long. Yeah, no, I mean – Look, laying up to 100 yards on three, there's no guarantee that you're going to hit the green going for that left pin either. Having said that, watching the telecast today, I didn't see anybody get it on the green from that short left 30-yard below. I mean, the ball's down here. Where's my phone? Right there. <laughs> yeah. The ball's down way down below. And, and when it comes up, it's landing at an obtuse angle. It never reaches its full trajectory. Yeah. And, and so you can't spin it enough. You can't stop it. Um, and I did see some guys hitting it close from the 80, 90, 100, 110-yard shots. 
Some of them got it close. I didn't see anybody today that got it close from, from short left of the green. So, and, and then you got to understand Augusta National. Uh, I'm going to say it was four years ago when I was still there. Uh, I, I walk on the, and the third hole was my hole. So I went out in the morning uh, of Thursday to, to putt the green. And I noticed that they had, they had put, they had mounded the fairway in the front of the green to, to repel the ball left and right. So that it would be really, really difficult to land it short in the middle and, and bounce it up on the green. It would probably careen right or, or left into some trouble. Yeah. It's, um, it's a diabolical hole. It's a place where um the first time I had a chance to play, I'll name drop here. First time I had a chance to play Pebble Beach, I did it with Laird Small as part of the greatest boondoggle of my career, where I got asked to go to the Pebble Beach Golf Academy for four days to take lessons. And they have playing lessons on the courses. And Laird was with me on the top of the six tee box. And um, a lot of people who are listening to this are going to be pretty familiar with Pebble Beach. He said, this is... um." this is a deceivingly hard hole for recreational players. And I'm like, what do you mean? The, the fairway is wide. I get the second shot is up. He said, yeah, but what people don't realize is that when, unless your name is Tiger Woods and you're hitting it down to a flat area, you're going to be hitting your second shot from a downhill lie, trying to go up. And ideally you want to hit a cut or something over there. And the water's crashing to your right. He said, this place is death by paper cuts. You don't realize the awkward situation the designer of the golf course has put in put you into until you're there and you don't understand, well, why can't I hit this six iron up there? It's because you're on a downhill line. It's de-lofted now like a four iron. And Augusta National to me seems like it's so many times the same type of thing. You're constantly put in this awkward position. And if you want to play it safer, the shot that's required then is eminently more difficult because, for example, on the fifth hole, You'd love to be able now with that with that tee box all the way back there to keep it out to the right to stay away from these gigantic fairway bunkers. And with good reason, you don't want to be in those fairway bunkers. Well, if you go out to the right to safety, you have now got a much longer shot in the farther right and the farther safety you go into a green that's got what a couple different tiers, undulations all over the place. It's one of the most challenging. There's a reason why that's one of the hardest holes out there. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes gets lost during the broadcast is that we see guys hit it into Ray's Creek. And you immediately say, like, oh, oh, that cost him a shot. Or you see guys you know, doing other things. And Augusta National seems like it's one of these places where it can get you in a big way with that number, but players are constantly being made to, to feel uncomfortable. That they're never, there's never a comfortable, flat, stock yardage, right? I mean, it's just... Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's all situational awareness. And, and, I mean, I'm free to say this now because I don't work with CBS anymore and I don't have any affiliation with Augusta National. But the the rough slash second cut uh, is significantly longer than the first few years when they put it in. And if you look at five in particular, I saw at least five or six flyers out of that right rough that flew over the back portion of the green today. And, and so that's another way that they, they just kind of carve you up. You know, the, that death by a thousand cuts is a, is a very good image because you just they, they keep making you have to make the right decision, knowing that sooner or later you're going to make the wrong decision and they're going to get you. Yeah. How pissed off is Xander Shoffley right now? You know, obviously he's upset. Obviously, uh, but, but he kind of put himself out of it early in, in, the, in the game and ought to pat himself on the back for coming back and making a charge. 
And I mean, he was coming in hot when he got 16. He was really feeling it. And, you know, if he's to be believed that he put a good swing on the, on the wrong club or misread the wind, um, you know, then that stuff happens. Yeah. And you got to learn in that situation. Um, maybe you got to play it three or four more steps out to the right and, and not, not take such a direct line in the flat. So if you're his coach or you're his caddy, or if you're whoever he talks to about these kind of things, how do you get him to sort of see the bright side of this? Because I would imagine to some degree players, well, players in the locker room sort of become known for coming close, but not getting it done. He's a really young guy and he's a tremendous talent, but we're now starting to see Xander Shoffley at the top of a lot of leaderboards in big events and big tournaments without necessarily winning them. Now he won the tour championship at East Lake. That's a pretty damn big tournament. There's a lot of prestige that goes into that. You're able to get yourself there, number one, and then to win it deserves a lot of respect. But he hasn't been able to do that, but he keeps getting close in the majors. How do you how do you try and help him avoid turning that into a negative and getting this rep that he starts to listen to? Well, uh, somebody said today, I think he's had eight second-place finishes since his last win, something like that. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's, it's pretty close. Close. And, and all I would tell him if I were his coach, uh, all right, let's take eight times. How many times did you lose? How many times did you get beat? Because sometimes somebody just played better than you. Okay, all right, you lost four times. You had it in your control and you didn't pull it off. Did you make the same mistakes each and every time or did you make a different mistake? Because if you're making the same mistake, then we pretty much know what's going on. If you make it a different mistake each time, then it's a learning curve that you got to go through. And, and what do you take from this week? What do you take from today that will help you learn to, to not make that mistake again? And if you're diligent and you still believe in yourself and your skills and you have a game plan, um, things will change. They'll break your way. I mean, let's face it. Hideki wins by one, right? He flew that drive on 13 way the hell up into the pine trees. And it came back in a position that allowed him to knock it on in two. That could have just as well gone somewhere and been unplayable behind a tree. And, and so you got to have bounces go your way sometimes. You can't control everything in the game of golf. So to some degree, would you agree that then for Xander to take the next step and to win a major championship, whether it's going to be Kiowa in a month or wherever down the line, it's going to be more of a mental thing for him? Because it would seem, at least outwardly, he drives the ball plenty long. I think longer than people probably appreciate. He's an excellent ball striker. He's usually a fairly reliable putter. His short game seems like it's pretty tight. I don't see a glaring weakness or problem in his game. Only thing that it can be um, is, is if we make all of those assumptions about the quality of his full swing, short game, and putting, um, is he playing too aggressively or too conservatively uh, in crunch time? Is there a pattern there? Do you need to, to have a little bit more patience? Or are you playing too defensively? I mean, these are questions that the player, his caddy, and his coach need to his father. They need to sit down and discuss. And, and like I said before, as long as there's not a pattern there, you know, of, of backing up by playing too conservatively or, you know, backing up by playing too aggressively, um, it, it'll come his way. He's too good to not have it come his way. 
He's he's really good. Um, another guy who's really good right now is Jordan Spieth. And I was asked earlier in the day who I thought from well back in the pack was somebody who could come out and maybe put a little bit of pressure on Matsuyama, obviously having a four-shot lead at the beginning of the day. He needed to help the field, which it turns out in a way he did. Um, is at, at, With this, what we saw over the last four days at Augusta, with winning the Valero Texas Open, having a, a really nice, good comeback on the West Coast, um, T4, if I'm not mistaken, at the Waste Management Phoenix Open, really good showing at Pebble Beach the next week. Um, he even gets a, a nice, uh, in my mind, just the right amount of match play at the WGC. I don't like it when guys play seven rounds or seven different pieces of golf in five days. I think it's a lot of golf, and it can really wear guys out. Um, are you ready to say that Jordan is, quote-unquote, back? And how much of a chance, given what you're seeing from his game at this point, do you, how much of a chance do you think he has at Kiowa to complete the career Grand Slam? He's not back yet. He is well on his way. And I, and I say that because when you make changes, I'm really happy that he's strengthened his left-hand grip and he's got some fundamentals organized and this and that. Um, the first level of acceptance is being able to do it consistently on the driving range. Then you go to the golf course and you're able to do it at the golf course. And then you tee it up in a tournament. You can do it in a tournament. And, and each of those is a little bit different level of, of getting back. Um, and then you do it under pressure on a weekend and you get a little bit better. And then you do it in a regular tour event and you win like Valero. That's another level of coming back. And then in Jordan Spieth's case, because he's a multiple major champion winner, he has to be able to do this under major championship pressure. And in my opinion, he didn't get it done this week, um, but he's working his way towards that. I would not be surprised for him to win uh, another event, maybe between now and the PGA or, or you know, the U.S. Open or, or whatever. But um, you have to – you're not back until you're back. That's a yogiism, I know, but but if he was just trying to get back in the winner's circle, then I'd say he's back because he won at Valero. But he's trying to get back and win major championships and and close out the career Grand Slam, right? Yeah. So that's that's the that's when he'll be back in yeah. my book. It's it it was impressive. I was I was hopeful that he would have a good Masters. He obviously does. Um, he finishes six shots behind. Excuse me, no. Uh, I'm taking a look at my score, but three shots behind Hideki. Hideki bogeys 18. Uh, that threw my math a little bit. It was great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think personally, it's a little more fun when some of the star players are playing well. And to see Jordan go through a prolonged period where he was not, um, I think it was interesting to see how many the outpouring of affection for him from pretty much the entire golf community. That win at the Valero Texas Open was a really popular one. People were excited for him. They were excited when he when he was T4 to in Phoenix, you know, around the corner from you, they were really amped up about that. To see him becoming Jordan Spieth again um, is encouraging. What is? I, I, will, I will say this, David. You know, he's 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 well on his way to being back because he didn't really hit it very well this week. No, he scrambled his butt off, and he made score. He made birdies from places where you could have made triple and stuff like that. And when he was in his slump, and so swing oriented so technique oriented he lost a little bit of that of that street fight that he has and and now he's showing me that he has a little bit more confidence in his swing technique he's not going to fall apart and therefore now he can get the bulldog back in him and, and, and take a bite out of the golf course and and and, uh, and go from there 
so Golf Channel was running uh, early in the week some of the old Masters videos where they do the wrap-up thing where Nance is doing the the narrations and they get quotes and they show all the great shots. And um, I think it was 2000, it was the 2015 one. And they had Ben Crenshaw on. And he said, I think I looked into Jordan's eyes, nice kid, but it was like looking at Wyatt Earp. He wanted to go out there and step on everybody. He said, this kid is going to be fantastic. And obviously in 2015, he was untouchable. He gets to 18 under par. Um, I don't love the ocean course at Kiowa for Jordan. I love the fact, as you're saying, that he's scrambling and he's scoring. Um, a really windswept, linksy, big, big ballpark, lots of sand. I love guys who can hit fairways off of that. But that's for another podcast at, at some point or another. I do love the fact, though, that he also was the, becomes the first player in Masters history to birdie number 10 all four days. Yeah, that's, which, that's pretty cool. Un unbelievable to think that no one had ever done it and that Spieth was able to – four birdies there is like robbery. Um, Bryson DeChambeau. I was asked by GolfWeek.com to live – basically shot for shot Bryson stuff for the first three rounds. And I don't know how much of Bryson you saw at the masters because you had to get out early, certainly on the weekends, because he was not in contention. Um, his driving is unbelievable. Like I forget that sometimes that it's, it's kind of a way that he can put himself in positions on the golf course when he's driving it well, where it, nobody else is out there. The golf course is different for him than it is for everybody else. And there were a couple instances, certainly on Friday, when he shot 67, where, as I wrote, he's missing some fairways in some cases by a couple feet, so it goes down as a missed fairway. His angles are so much better than everybody else's because of where he can position it. Um, and then I took a look at his short game, and it was awful. Um, his pitching and his chipping, anything that required finesse, to me, was lacking. There, which doesn't mean that he didn't hit some good pitch shots and chip shots. But when he really needed to, he wasn't executing. Um, what are your thoughts about Bryson's game as it translates from week-to-week -week PGA Tour events to Augusta National? Whereas we've talked about on this podcast already, there are so many subtleties and nuances that somebody who's so analytically driven and calculating, I don't know how you calculate some of the things at the Masters that you, that you would try and make account for. Well, a couple things. Um, the, the one thing that's been missing in people's acceptance of Bryson's ability to play is just how well he's been putting. I mean, he has been putting phenomenally well, but he is heavily dependent on the greens books. And, and you can't have him at Augusta. They're banned at Augusta. And so I think that that left him a confidence hole. You know, having to use your eyes, having to read the putt, and not being able to, I mean, I'm sure he made his own notes from practice rounds, but I think um, his putting is probably, he wasn't as confident with his putting this week as, as he would be in a regular event where he has a greens book. That's number one. Number two, uh, the, the distance that he can hit the driver only is going to help you on a handful of holes at Augusta National because you have to put the ball in the fairway at a certain distance to be able to get a certain trajectory, a certain spin, to attack a certain hole and blowing it up close to the green may not be the play on some holes um, and it's certainly not putting it in the trees, which he did on numerous occasions. So I think controlled aggression at Augusta is okay. Um, you know, you can try and drive it down the hill on two. You can, you can put it up in front of the green with his three wood on three. 
Uh, you can take it over the bunker on five, but you better not block it or you're going to be out of bounds or, or in the trees. Uh, yeah. Eight, again, you can, you can take advantage of. But there's some other holes there, like 14, really difficult to, to hit a 360-yard drive and make sure it turns with the contour of the fairway all the way. Yeah, it's it was it was impressive in the same thing. His what I really think was his biggest undoing was certainly the first two rounds a total lack of distance control. Um, certainly on Thursday, where he he was missing fairways. Uh, I think he only hit five of fourteen, if I'm not mistaken, maybe six of fourteen. He was shooting the ball ten or fifteen yards long on every approach shot, which then the ball bounds in there. It had been really firm and really fast. And I want to get to the. To and that. where did most of those second shots come from? Well, they, they were coming from the first cut, which, as you sort of alluded to, is going to scrub all the spin off. And maybe right. you get a flyer, maybe you don't. He talked about the fact that he didn't have Greens books, that he didn't have some of the preparatory kind of things that he has at, at other tournaments. And, you know, he's like, that's just one more challenge I've got to overcome. And he said all the right things. Um, and I think he genuinely believes that, too. I'm not calling him a liar in the least. Um, but when I look at what he's trying to do, he's like, you know, I've got to get better at being able to gauge Augusta National, how chipping from a downhill lie to an uphill green, and then from an uphill lie to a downhill green. And I'm like, yeah, that that's that's right, because that's the subtlety. That's the death by paper cut thing we were talking about a little, little while ago, is that if you miss these greens and you are above the hole, for example, if you're above the hole on nine, you're done. Um, if you're above the hole on certain other ones, like you just, you just can't be there. And his misses were just miles long. Well, David, you know, this gets back to my quandary over just how much of golf is science and how much is art. And, and um, I don't think Augusta National is a golf course that can be conquered by science. When I look at the great players around there, whether it's Seve Ballesteros or short game, heck, Hideki Matsuyama over the weekend, some of yeah. those short game shots that he hit, the one over 18 yesterday. 18 was amazing. That's, yeah. that's, that's touchy-feely stuff. You know, and if, and if you don't have that touchy feely stuff like Mickelson, like Tiger, yep. whatever, you know, you can't produce an equation to scientifically hit a shot in certain situations around this golf course. It's just not possible. And so I don't know how um, how Bryson's going to resolve that because his creative side in the short game area and with wedges. Um, it is it's just not there. It's it's when he can apply an equation to it on a regular tour event and something like that. Yeah, he he can calculate stuff and and hit it in there close. But that's not what Augusta National is. So, you know, think, think of the winners. I mean, yeah. Crenshaw. You, you 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 just peeled them all off. I mean, all of the players that you mentioned in Jordan Spieth when he wins. Jordan yeah. Spieth comes out in 2014 before he wins. He's already got that. The creativity, the putting, the short game were already world class. Um, all of these guys are getting it done. Patrick Reed, when he wins, is getting it up and down and putting it in from everywhere. Sergio Garcia, when he wins, he putted lights out. You know, his his finesse and his hands were, were all there. Um, what are we supposed to make of Roy Roy McElroy right now? Um, there were a number of big a number of big name players who didn't make the cut, and to some degree. There's various and different reasons why people do it. I was surprised that Dustin Johnson didn't make the cut. I was really surprised that Rory McIlroy didn't make the cut, and it wasn't even close at that point. What what are we supposed to make of this? Right now, he's lost. 
right now he's looking for some guidance. Uh, you know, if the reports are to be believed, he's working with Pete Cowan now. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't have to wait and see how that goes. Um, I, for one, if, if he came and asked me for some help <laughs> the, the week before or the week of the Masters, I'd say, here's my help. You go play, call me Sunday night when it's over, and we'll start next week. Yeah. I'm sure as hell I'm not going to give him stuff to work on and think about while he goes and tries to plot his way around Augusta National. I'm just not going to do it. I think there's a time and a place for instruction, and there's a time and a place for a player to just figure out how he can just bunt the ball around and, and get the job done, make a number. Yeah, assuming well, that he's assuming that he's healthy, I would just think if the is is Roy the kind of person who needs to just play his way out? I know that he's played a lot of events this year. That doesn't mean he's necessarily won, obviously, or played them well. But uh, from a coaching perspective. How do you determine when there is a problem that we need to work on from a mechanical standpoint? And how much of it do guys start focusing so much on mechanics? And I wonder if to some degree if this is Jordan. And they just, he's going to get out and play a lot and just remember how to score, remember how to play the game itself. Well, there's, there's, there's two different parts. Um, you know, I, I always maintain, and I said this, uh, I said this oh, back at Bell Reef um, when he switched to a lower spinning ball. And I, I walked with him for 18 holes or parts of 36 holes that week. And and uh, I, I made the comment on the air, look, he's not playing a golf ball that spins enough for his wedges. Every time he hits it in the rough, he gets a flyer. No, no questions asked. He has no spin control. And so I always thought that was an issue. When he tried to flatten his golf swing out, you can't change the shape of your golf swing without changing the lie angle of your irons. I always thought his wedges were too upright when he started to swing more around. So I think there's some mechanical things there um, in equipment. I think there's some technical things with his golf swing. He needs to get on a program and stick to it and not change and not waver. And that's why this, this swing coach change bothers me a little bit because I don't know, uh, you know, what direction he's going to be taken and, and, and how committed he's going to be to it. But one thing's for certain, he's got to get he's got to get some blinders on. He's got to get a clear focus of what is wrong, what he needs to do right, and how he's going to work on it. So to so, sort of put a little little bit of a bow on this, do you enjoy Augusta National the way it was set up for this Masters in April a little bit more or less than what we saw in November? Which one do you well, prefer? I, my very first time going to Augusta, uh, Davis Love Jr., Davis Love III's father, uh, he brought me along with a member there, and and uh, we played in October, and and the place had just been overseas, and, and the grass was this long and everywhere, and the greens were like eight and a half, nine on the stint meter. It was just and it was wet and soggy and whatever. I hated it. I have I had the good fortune over the years of being there with CBS and and players uh, of playing a bunch of times, and firm and fast is the way the golf course is meant to be played. It's an inland links golf course, if there's such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I much prefer this. Having said that, I, I think they're getting on the hairy edge of ridiculous with the speeds of the greens um, and, the, and the close mown areas around the greens. I mean, you hit it over the 15th green, you ought to be able to chip it up there somewhere and, and, and not fear putting it in the pond on the other side. 
I, I've come to realize that the color uh, variations that sometimes you see on the putting surfaces themselves can be a little bit misleading. But on Thursday afternoon, when you're already starting to see purple and brown patches on the putting surface, and you know that the weather forecast is mid-80s, low-80s, there's a chance of a thunderstorm. But that place was a, was a racetrack for the Augusta National Women's Am. I mean, we knew that it was already, by what they were telling us, firm and fast and you would think that it was going to be a little bit softer for them than they would have it for the men the following week during the masters so um i i would love it somewhere right in between personally i i think that a lot of the pressure a lot of the players we saw some wonderful shots today some great golf shots we saw some train wrecks which is always entertaining and makes for theater and and the volatility that 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 back nine gives us um it wasn't the blow away kind of thing. It wasn't, you know, multiple players all playing great, giving it to us, which to be perfectly frank, we have been spoiled over the last however many number of years with tremendous finishes and tremendous afternoons on Sundays at Augusta. So I'm sort of right in the middle. I would love to have seen a few more guys and a few more contenders be able to move forward, but it's difficult to know whether that is a factor of the golf course was really, really hard and the wind was swirling, which is, that's uncontrollable. And how much was guys just succumbing to nerves, not simply being able to, for whatever reason, execute at the level that the golf course demands. And uh, I guess we've got 51 weeks for everybody to get themselves ready to, to do it again. Um, Pete, I want to really th say thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. Give me a little bit of time on a Sunday evening. All the best. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the Ford Press. Double D, you guys. Anytime, pal. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.